Hi, this is Aaron Azarod, and welcome to the second episode of the Truth Island podcast. And this is Roger Armandadis. In our last conversation, we asked the question, why is it that the smartest people in our world often are the ones not making decisions and not in positions of power? For this answer, we turn to a book called The Republic, written by an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Plato. In book four of The Republic, Plato outlines the idea of a philosopher king or a group of people known as the guardians. The guardians, according to Plato, have been gifted with the ability to rule for the simple reason that they have a never ending love of wisdom. In Plato's Utopia, the guardians would naturally rise through the ranks and make all major decisions because their insatiable love of learning would always lead them to see past bias and all other corrupting influences that society often brings. And I also think that this is where, uh, as much as I do like Plato, he, he becomes a little bit too optimistic of what humans actually are. Um, I think with a lot of ancient philosophy, we tend to still, and it's probably, it may be more of a cultural difference or maybe just a semantical difference of justice, but I, I do feel like humans normally can't quite live up to our ideals, right? And that's why they're ideals. And to then say that the ideal re leader should have things like justice or be the embodiment of justice, point, I, think, I think points to what we all want, but I think also points to a bigger, kind of a, a bigger idea of like what authority is and what, what, um, what our leaders should be. Uh, for me, government stru is, quite stru is structured quite similarly to religion in that we create abstractions of ideals and then expect the people that are in charge to be avatars of those ideals. So uh, for me, uh, and this is, this could be a little bit of a long tangent to start with, but for me, I think humans in general are always asking ourselves, well, what is authority? And I think we do that from the start. You know, you, you're trying to figure out who, what is allowed, what is okay, and who should I follow? And that starts as a child, you know, you're born in the world, you have your mother and your father, and that's kind of like your main home base. Those are the two first people you try to test out, right? You, you know, as, as most children, they'll grab hair, they'll poke eyes, they'll do everything, right? Like with, with a child, the reason we have to watch them is because they will literally do everything. They have no restrictions or, or guardrails on their behavior. And then slowly through positive and negative reinforcement, we teach the child, it's like, okay, you can lightly slap me, you can't poke my eye, that's not okay, right? Like, but we can play, we can do. And then as you grow into an adult, assuming you're actually socialized and did learn what is acceptable and what is not, and especially correctly, the government or the state then becomes the next parent that's functioning in the same way. It's, and so then the question becomes with almost all ideology, it's like, okay, who makes the rules and why are those the rules? And I think that all gets derived from, well, what it is we're trying to do. What do we care about? What is the state trying to do? And I think, I think, Plato's idea here of, well, the main thing should be justice. Um, we're, we can definitely get into it more, but I, I think that's a very, 
it, it's one that for some people will sound great and for other people will not. And I think that's the, that's the main issue is that I don't think any of us feel like a f we don't all have a collective value, right? All humans are going to value things differently. Yeah, there's a lot of people in our society, for example, that would say something like compassion or empathy mm -hmm. is the strongest virtue, not something uh, such as justice, which can be very harsh at times. Uh, I, I think Plato believes that the standards you hold yourself to. So if you believe that the world ought to be just, then you in turn act just. He actually gives the example that when you've been wronged in this world, you run towards justice. So just imagine like your purse or your wallet was snatched. You run to the police. You run towards justice. You demand that that's rectified. But let's just say, for example, you're cheating on your taxes. You actually run away from justice. You hope that justice doesn't find you. You hope that some accountant in the IRS doesn't find that you've been skimping 5% every year. So I think it's that relationship to your behavior and what you believe in and how, in fact, you will govern. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point because that's essentially what children do when they cry, right? Like when a child cries, it's a cry for authority. It's a cry for a third party to resolve something that they can't. I, I think, so I think that's inherited within us. And I'm not by any means calling anyone childish. I think, I, I think the behaviors that we exhibit as children just become more complex as we grow older, but they don't go away. So mm. I think the idea of like, yeah, like for example, getting robbed and you're not strong enough to take it yourself or don't have the capacity to take it yourself, then stops you from being able to take action yourself, which then requires a, a third party that's, you know, the Hobbes, the Leviathan, right, that comes in and then hashes things out. I, I, I guess for me, yeah, I guess. I guess I would like to ask what, what's your concept of authority or what, what do you, for example, let's just see if me and you differ in this. What do you think should be the ultimate value of society? What, what do you think would be the most valuable aspect of society? I, you know, I can't say justice 100%, but I am in agreement with Plato that it is one of the top uh, virtues out there um, of the ones that he outlined. And I, I would say that if you seek justice, it shows that you're, it kind of encompasses the others. It kind of encompasses courage. It kind of encompasses temperance because you might be in a position of authority and you might really want to cheat on your taxes because you're powerful and you can get away with it. But if you have a sense of justice, that actually gives you temperance. It actually gives you self-control because you know that you cannot commit behavior uh, that you outwardly con um, uh, condemn. So I think that um, justice is is on the top of the pyramid. Is it the most important? It's it's probably in the top three. Nice. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. That justice, by all means, is a necessity for like for almost anyone to want to belong to that state, right? If you're in a state without justice, it's uh, unless you're an extremely hardened person that can just fend for yourself no matter what and you're totally cool with that i think most of us naturally want to be like yeah i, I don't i don't want to have to constantly be worried about some about being exploited in some way uh I, I guess i just ask what the top one is because from my perspective i do believe that our values are hierarchical like i think we all have to rank what we value um, because what's on top is what's going to decide 
what our what what our actions are and i don't think they're like set completely right i think there's constantly shifting but i think we do have a default to like what we value as the highest normally well let's say that like for devil's advocate's sake here let's say we made compassion our highest mm -hmm. virtue as a society let's think about all the ways that that could be right and it could be wrong like if we saw starving children somewhere then we probably would be like the first country to respond we would probably have a very generous welfare system so there are virtues in being an overly compassionate society i think when we get into the details however like let's say there's a a violent crime that is committed are we compassionate towards the victim? Are we compassionate to the guy facing 30 years in prison? So I think compassion can be a very loose term because there's so many different ways to apply it and, and many different contexts in which we uh, can apply it. And also, I, I would think that in some ways, if you have high levels of compassion, you may not have the highest levels of accountability because if people do things wrong and you're constantly feeling sorry for them or constantly excusing their behavior, you essentially have created a society that has no accountability mechanism whatsoever. And a lot of behaviors that are intolerable now suddenly become tolerated. Right, yeah, and I also think, I think Freud really did a good job of pointing out what one of the dangers is of overly over-compassion, right? Overcompensating the compassion department is, the devouring mother, right? And from a, and on that end, it's essentially that the mother has invested so much of their time, energy, money, and essentially has sacrificed just to a great extent their life and their potential for this child, right? You spend 18 years throwing everything, and then that child grows old and then leaves you and does quite literally doesn't need you anymore. And there's there's this huge incentive to actually weaken that person to make them dependent on you. I think that same cycle plays out. Speaking of potential, Roger, would you care to lead us on Plato's idea of the souls? Well, I, I can't speak too much for Plato's ideas. Uh, I, I, do, I do have some ideas as far as souls and Plato's general conception that people do have souls and have a, that you've been destined to have a skill set and that that skill set where it's best applied should be where it's applied. So it's the idea of like, um, for example, I'm 6'4", and ever since I was a kid, the constant comment I'd always hear is, oh, so you play, do you play, do you play basketball? Do you play basketball? That was always, and, and to some extent, there's, there's a little bit of that behind there, right? It's like, oh, you're super tall. That would really help you in the game of basketball. Why wouldn't you want to then do that? Um, and I think my my preacher once asked me that and I said, no. And then he, his response is like, well, at least you can always change lights. Right. So, but it, it's this idea of your potential is best served where your potential would, would go furthest. And this is so go ahead. Did you have Yeah. So I think that uh, Plato's idea of the souls kind of has been misinterpreted uh, in recent times greatly. Like people think, man, that's kind of a prehistoric, like eugenic kind of theory that certain people are destined to do X and then certain people are destined to mop the floors for the rest of their life. And that's not at all what Plato is saying. Your soul is something that speaks to you and shouts at you every single day 
you love doing this, you ought to be doing that. Or the way, the way I kind of see it is that, you know, we have these ideas in psychology called flow states. So if you're doing an activity for 10, 12 hours and you lose track of time, uh, psychologists will say that you're in a state of flow or in the zone, so to speak. And I think that's kind of what Plato is alluding to. He's not saying that your biology or your birth order um, determine what it is that you're destined to do in this world. It's rather you will naturally gravitate towards the things that make you happy. And I think you're a great example of that, Roger, because being six foot four, your biology told you you should have been a basketball player, but your soul spoke to you otherwise and said, no, uh, that's not something I want to do. I want to do boxing instead. Right, which still turns out is still somewhat of an advantage, but not to the same extent. Um, and I, yeah, I also really like this idea. I, I do, obviously, I think with Plato, once you're reading them, especially nowadays, it's very, very easily easy to become purposely offended by what he's trying to say, right? Like there's, cause there's a lot of things that's like, Ooh, that's just sounds a little, a little bit too much like eugenics, a little bit too much like, Oh, certain people or certain things. But I, I do appreciate his general point on this idea of we do have a uniqueness to us that allows us to then fit against certain problems better than others, other people. Like, and I, I think to some extent he's right. Cause I think for example, temperament or personality wise, like some people are just more interested in certain things than others. I, I think that's a pretty undeniable part. Like there's certain jobs that I've done that I've seen other people completely excel in and, you know, have actually enjoy doing that. I'm like, I, they need to pay me more if, if I'm going to keep doing this kind of kind of thing. But I also, I also do push back a little bit on this idea that souls are, are just this mystical thing that should be dismissed. Um, because I think the idea of souls has almost always been, what is it that you are in like true, like the real down core core you the thing that survives even your death right that, that's kind of how it's always mythologized it's like what is it that you actually are and i i i can't remember where this is conceptualized but i i always considered it as it's a pattern more than anything so what what are you what is uniquely you that nothing else exists it's like well the makeup of your temperament and your past experiences creates a behavior pattern that no one else has had right no one else is acting the way we're acting no one else is creating this podcast no one else is having these conversations um so then the idea is well what is that pattern what would you call that pattern it's like well it seems to come directly from me it is me as it is being expressed in the world okay well what happens when you die does the pattern still exist it's like well to some extent, yeah, because we like, for example, Plato's soul, right? His pattern of his existence several thousand years ago is influencing our conversation directly today. Sure. I mean, I would, you know, in terms of like the, whether you can find the soul in the body, I'm not that, I'm not mm -hmm. too much concerned with that. I think Plato also in book four uses the word desire and in Buddhism, desire has a really negative connotation. But for Plato, it's a really positive word. It's like the desire, like what is your desire to find meaning out of life? What is your desire to do in this world? And like for, for everyone on this planet, 
there's a different desire that will put them into the zone or put them into flow. It could be playing basketball. It could be having podcasts. It could be doing boxing and so forth. And he actually connects us to the idea of justice because he said it is a grave injustice to force people to do roles in which they are not suited for in terms of their soul. And I couldn't agree more with that. Like we uh, definitely live in this world where we idolize the Renaissance man, the man that can speak five languages, can then paint a nice landscape, cook a wonderful four, you know, four course dinner and so forth. And Plato kind of gets us. He says, no, like we're not meant to be Renaissance men. There, there might've been a few in history, but most of us have very, very special proclivities and special interests that we like to pursue. And it is like one of the most gravest injustices to not let people pursue what it is that they're passionate for. Right, which is actually interesting because that's kind of also Marx's general criticism. First and foremost, like Marx's criticism of the capitalist system is that it alienates us from our work, right? It is that it creates something that humans normally used to do as a self-defining expression and makes it into just a pointless task that we're done for someone else's benefit, essentially. So I, I can definitely appreciate that. Though for me, this is where Plato gets a little weird for me, because for me, if like the guardians that he's talking about, like, well, okay, but aren't they the ones that are just seeking all wisdom, which then requires that they become essentially Renaissance men, that they essentially seek out all the information that they don't know and like seek out the unknown as like the best quality. But I also think that that isn't someone, that isn't something that a lot of people do, right? I think that's, that's I think that really gets into artists and what they're doing because an artist is almost always if, if i could interject for a moment i think that plato would argue that the philosopher kings who are all seeking in wisdom i don't think that plato uh expects that the guardian is going to know how to make a perfect bowl for example or be a perfect warrior however their wisdom will be so powerful that they will concede that knowledge or wisdom to a person who does specialize in that field and then seek counsel for it. So I think that if you're a guardian and we're about to go to war and I'm not the best warrior, I will then sort of learn from the greatest warriors what's the best battle strategy to take. Yeah, I think that's where it gets iffy on my end because then that, that cause then I'll, what that is is the leader is always putting it, it's almost as though the leader is much more the selector of authority than the authority themselves or herself right it's like the the i mean i guess to some extent that that makes sense right it's like the the person in charge is actually selecting who is the selector of who should be in charge depending on the situation. So, like, so they're selecting the, the greatest specialist. And I, I, think, right, yeah. I think that's a good point. Uh, he doesn't mention this, but perhaps one solution to that is maybe within that group of specialists, they put forth who they think is that best specialist. So if you ask, like, uh, if you take, for example, like UFC fighters, for example, if those UFC fighters all agree that this is the best fighter, then we could say that that person is. Or if we have scientists who are debating something like climate change, if all the scientists kind of come together and form a consensus, like this person over here is the leading figure of authority, 
then perhaps the guardians will listen to that person. But I, I get what you're saying. Perfect. Yeah, it can be confusing. Well, th this is actually perfect because exactly what you just described is my idea of where we derive authority, which is the dominance hierarchy, mm. right? The very fact that like, okay, we're at a war. Well, who do we want making the calls? Well, who's best at war, right? Like that, that is the qualifier. So it's like, well, how do we find that out? It's like, ask everyone who knows anything about war have them all basically vote to some extent or, or push someone up. And it's like, whoever they choose, that's, that's our, a decent bet, or at least our, our best bet. If it's all working, at least a decent bet. If it's a little, if the system's corrupt or the hierarchy's corrupt, it's like, for me, I think that's how we're functioning even just as primates, right? Like anytime there's a situation, we all kind of look around and like, all right, who's the best among us? I think, uh, with our political system, it gets a little iffy because you have, you have a lot of corruptive powers there, just like the party system, uh, the electoral college, the, um, money in general. But uh, I think we do that even just in like lo at a local level, whenever any situation, any new situation happens, we kind of always look around each other and be like, all right, who's the best set to like handle the situation. And then the group's kind of like, okay, you, you're, you're, you're the best one at this. And I, I think that, that's where that's just how humans function i think that's why for example democracy is such an attractive thing to us because it's like it's all of us voicing it's like we all agree this person should be the one in charge and someone another group will form and be like no this person should be the one in charge it's like well let's just go with who has the most in like who's won over the most people but then that leads to a lot of other problems in my opinion i think this kind of uh puts like even though courage and wisdom are both leading Virtue, virtues for Plato. I think one of the issues that you come with is that the most courageous person may not always be the wisest. So the courageous person might step up and say what it is that's on their mind. And they, they may even refute experts and be like, no, I and I alone have the answer or my team of experts have the answer. And they, move, they may move forward with their agenda Whereas I think for Plato, though, if you have that supremacy where your love of wisdom kind of overtakes your courage in a sense, you're going to naturally flock to people who know things that you yourself don't know. And I think in our popular culture, I think like the last president that apologized for anything was John F. Kennedy for the Bay of Pigs. And people love that about him. They love that he didn't know something and that he screwed something up. And like, like for a president to say, I don't know, is like, has become the greatest taboo of our society. But a true lover of wisdom would be, I really don't have the answer to that. Bring me the expert that does. That's, I think that's a good point. I think, uh, I, I, I guess my biggest issue is just how, where you know where's the sovereign get their right essentially hmm. there has to be in my eyes there has to be some at least some form of tacit consent from people else unless you know like in our country the united states right like that gets very very different once like if you're in an authoritarian state or anything of that nature where like they don't really care and the system's already been established to the point where simply like, if you don't want it that doesn't matter right like they can just push you push you through you know it's funny you say that roger because speaking back to plato he has an idea that the ones that should be rulers or the future guardians is not decided by hereditary it's not decided that oh my father was a guardian therefore i'll be a guardian as well 
he has a strong sense. He doesn't even use this word, but he believes in meritocracy. He believes if you're born to a guardian and you're not living up to those ideals, you might be better suited doing something else with your life. And that's okay. There's no judgment or anything. Whereas you might have a father or a mother who was an artisan, but you display characteristics of leadership and wisdom, and therefore you might be worthy of becoming a guardian. I think that that's something that in America, at least today, we've completely deviated away from. And then the person I'm going to use as an example is Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea Clinton is not interested in getting in politics at all. She's expressed no interest in, in running for office. However, if Chelsea woke up tomorrow and said, mom, dad, I want to be the next president, she would have a team, a team of experts and PR consultants working under her, helping her get elected to the House or possibly the Senate, and basically creating a roadmap of her political career just by virtue of her last name. And it's not just Democrats. It's the same on the Republicans. There's the Bush dynasty. And our positions of power definitely favor the well-connected, and they definitely favor the wealthy. Um, and I think that Plato would argue that this is a grave, grave, grave injustice. I, I think he would connect this to the idea of justice because we're not allowing the people who might possess the highest levels of potential to reach their highest levels of potential. Right. And I also think that there's just so much, so much of the system that's already been corrupted from the inside that doesn't necessitate that we should get rid of all of it. Right. Cause it's still, still function it's still functioning decently and by decently as i'm comparing it to other governments in the world not to my ideal because by, by my ideal standard obviously it's trash but by what everyone else has been able to pull off it's like it's still all right it's not the worst but it's definitely not the best either um but i i do i i guess for me i think the information age has really changed the dynamics and I think a lot of our rules haven't really considered what that information age does. Cause like Chelsea Clinton, for example, the reason she would have at least a decent potential simply by name recognition, she's a brand, right? Like immediately, you know, who she is, you know, you know about her though. Most people don't know. You, you know who she is, even though you don't know anything about her essentially. So when it comes to voting, especially people that feel it's their civic duty to vote, but haven't bothered to really, know who's really running or really care it's like well it's just someone i know and you're always going to go with what's known over what's not no exactly and i i think that this is a great uh perversion of justice because you have this you essentially have a pseudo monarchy forming whereas if you, if you look at the example of king louis the 16th for example uh, was he a bad ruler? Was he a bad guy? Probably, probably not a bad guy, but definitely not suited to be a ruler. But if you look at him, he didn't really have a choice. He was born into that role. So he never had that choice to say, no, I, I just want to become a artist or I just want to pursue farming. He was never given that choice. And that's an example of when you have a soul which is slated for something else but then society forces you to do something that you weren't equipped to do. Right. And then it also gets, yeah, it gets into messier things like, well, who is supposed to follow those, 
their soul, right? Is it just the politicians or is it, should it be everyone, right? Like that's, like if I just want to go to art school and, you know, or, or more realistic, more honest, do a philosophy major, <laughs> right? Like you're always going to run into that problem of like, yeah, that may be your calling, but also you're going to need to feed yourself. You're going to need to function within a society that may not value the things that, that is your calling. Ah, now I think Plato kind of has a, a built-in solution to this. And he believes that the members of the guardian class should not be the wealthiest members of society and neither should they be the poorest. They should be somewhere in the middle. I think if you set this as the criteria where if you seek a life of public service, if you seek to be a politician or hold public office and there are laws in place that kind of make it really difficult to be wealthy, I think this is going to attract the right kinds of minds because there's so many people that might be entering politics for all the wrong reasons. They might want to do it to become famous. They might want to enrich themselves. They might want to use their political connections to further their business ends. But if you made the laws in such a way where you were kind of taking a, a vow of poverty, so to speak, by taking political office, I think you would naturally attract the best talent. You would attract people who have a genuine love and have a genuine passion for wisdom and for ruling. And if you kind of take all the glitz and glory away from it, you sort of end up with the best people. I, yeah, I guess I'd have to push back on that to some extent, because I think the biggest issue here is that power corrupts to some extent. Right. So the, and, and what I mean by that is that like, we could make it so it pays you $1, right? Like we could make it so like all you get is your meals and that's it. But like you're in charge of everything. I think it's the fact that you're in charge of everything. That is what gives it, what gives it its appeal more than anything else. Because, and we, we see it nowadays in ours, right? Like we'll have politicians go into the Senate, right? Or, you know, and, or the house, and the lobbyist will just always be there pushing certain bills, giving them bills to pass into our government. Um, most of them not even reading it and just kind of signing it in. And then afterwards having perfectly cushy jobs where they get in and they're taken care of. And because that norm's already established, if a lobbyist comes up and, you know, offers, you know, offers to advise you, it's like, there's already an understanding that's like, Hey, take care of us. We'll take care of you. And, you know, like without ever having to break the law, they can very much just be like, look, yeah, you're a public servant and all, but like, once you get out of it, you know, you're fine. Like I, I'm a federal worker. And what I found is so many people jump between private and public sector. And one of the reasons is the relationships. So yeah, you work in the public sector for a while, establish a bunch of relationships with people that are going to be there a bit. And then when you go to private sector, now you have a personal connection with the people that are working within the government. It's like, okay, technically not illegal. You, everyone's allowed to have friends, but if this is starts to become the norm, you're starting to corrupt the system. And that like, it's inevitable that it's going to start to get corrupt just because like, Hey, I worked with you for like two or three years. Yeah. I'll, I'll hear out your, your contract that your company's paying you like three times my salary to push on me. Like you, you can start to see very quickly that the influence of power alone 
just opens itself to an opportunity of corruption. I, I, I 100% agree with that. But I think as the founders did with our federalist system and checks and balances, if there was full transparency and, and we can debate how that would even, something like that would even be possible. I think if politicians were forced to live by a fully transparent lifestyle and everything on their voting record was fully scrutinized and every transaction that they made, every yes or yay or nay that they voted for was kind of held up to a very high standard, it would be a lot more difficult for them to conceal some of their more dirtier activity. And then if after leaving office, they decided to take a private sector job, we could kind of look at their voting record and say, ah, this was a work in progress all along. And I, I, I think by most people by like, there's very, you know, there's some people that want fame, but no one wants their private privacy exposed. I think that's a really hard thing to deal with. But if we set up, if we establish the system in such a way where you had very little privacy in terms of your dealings and so forth, I think that less people would want that job. I think it would just be a, a like in terms of building wealth, it would be a nightmare. In terms of pursuing your ideals and pursuing laws that you love, I think it would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, to some extent I agree because when we were talking about, for example, the hierarchy of values, I think for me, one of the highest ones would be truth or something similar to transparency. And I mean, obviously the state can never be fully, completely 100% transparent, um, mostly because you don't want secret plans and secret funding of, for like a special project that we're using to, you know, counter, counter push Russia and their nuclear arms race or something like you don't want that to be out there. But at the same time, I think being as transparent as possible in the, in here's like the abstract idealist way of like in good faith, which is a, a super hard thing to establish, right? You'd, we'd have to create a system that would somehow be a checks and balances on where funding is. And I think creating a even bigger bureaucracy is very, very difficult because as with all bureaucracies, they tend to fall down into, they just get very bogged down with workers, especially public, the public sphere. I think also like you're right about that. Bureau bureaucracy can be the death of many things. I think also though, following the idea of the souls is that if in our society we had greater, in, like if there was a place for people to go who really want to make money. Let, let's just say that your ultimate, your soul was telling you, I need to be really rich. I need to have a really big house. If we had opportunities that were specifically designed for that, like working in finance or working in banking, and your main objective was to be a rich person, you could do whatever it is that you want and your dealings could be a little bit more secretive and you could have that privacy. But if we just made the road of being a public servant, really, really, really difficult and just not all that fun and not all that pleasant. I think that those people who really want that wealth would go the route of banking or finance and the people who really kind of want to make executive decisions and, and make great laws and kind of govern would do that. And they would choose the harder road, which is less glorious or, or less uh, kind of hampers their 
ability to uh, generate wealth and they would just go for the easiest path. If your ultimate goal is wealth creation, if your goal is wisdom, well, then it's no brainer. You're going to go the way of uh, public service. Yeah, I think within our current capitalist society, I think it's quite easier. It's quite, quite tempting to just go for the money, even if it is, even if you do value everything else, right? Like, cause it, I, something that I've noticed, for example, in the federal government is that the federal government, the way it's set up, ideally should be working the way you're talking about, right? You don't get paid nearly as much. You have really good benefits. You're going to be taken care of, but you're not making crazy money working as a, a federal job. You're making secure, steady money. And what you would think is like, oh, well, then it's only only the people that are, are wanting to stay there are going to do that and that, that want to you know, do good work. In my experience, at least, what I have actually found is this is what happens. People go into the federal government and there are all kinds of different people. The people that don't want to be very effective, that normally don't do that much work, are like, wow, this is, this is a really cush job. It's super hard to fire me. I get all the benefits I need. I get a constant paycheck and I don't really have to work that hard. I don't have to do much at all. And then the super performers, the predo distribution, the people on the edge that like get everything done that are super effective, no matter where you put them, that like are just excellent workers, right? We all, like, I am not one of them. I've met people like that that I'm like, okay, you, you are way more committed to the mission than I am. Like <laughs> I'm willing to do the work and go a little bit extra, but like you're, you're like doubling everything I'm doing. Um, those people never last in the federal government. And the reason they never last is, well, I could be making, you know, 50K here working in the federal government or 150 working for a bank. Okay, why am I still working for the federal government? Like why? Am, and then you look over to the next person that's making the exact same amount of money and doing like one third of the work that you are. And because of their temperament, like they're just... They need their people real, real high conscientiousness. The people that are busy bodies and if they were left to do nothing, they would go crazy. Like that's their torture, right? You just leave them alone and they'll be like, no, no, I need to be doing something that's useful, something that's productive. So like they almost always leave. And the reason, like it's, it's reasonable for them to leave because like you're not being compensated. You're being compensated as though your value is that of the person next to you when really the bank is like, Oh, we got way more money and we could put you to way better use to create much more profit come this way. And I think that's the brain drain from the federal government that's been happening. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've sort of, uh, you know, I, I work, you know, uh, in the public sector as well, but I've also heard stories in the private sector that there's also a lot of corruption that goes on there. There are people, there are, you know, I've had so many friends that, you know, were temps or were entry-level employees and their bosses, you know, basically, you know, grinded them into salt. And then after six months of working 14 hour days, just fired them or laid them off and hired some other eager person to come take their place. What I think is going on both in the private and public sector that there is large scale corruption going on where we're not valuing the people that have the values that we want to be calling the shots. I, I think that we're fundamentally, there is nepotism going on. If you come from, if you come, for example, from a wealthy background, certain industries just want to hire you because of your connections. For example, in the insurance industry, one of the questions they'll ask you on an interview is, 
oh, uh, you know, where's your family from? Where do they live? And this is just kind of a backwards way, a backdoor rather way of assessing your social class to see who you could then sell to and be like, oh, okay, you can sell to these people or this person might come on as an investor. So right off the bat, you're sort of valuing and prioritizing people who have name recognition, wealth, and we're not necessarily recruiting the best from the philosopher class who actually want to work really hard and actually want to seek wisdom. Yeah, well, I also think it's just from from their end, they're hiring the person that serves them best for their end goal, right? Like, it's like their end goal. I mean, especially, for example, like the insurance company, the insurance company doesn't isn't that interested in you know, seekers of wisdom, like they're, they're interested in people that can push insurance, right? Like as the best that you can, if that's the, if that's the position. So I think one of the things that, I think this is something that most people don't consider, but we do live to some extent in a meritocracy, even though it doesn't feel like it, where it's just like, well, there's no merit here. I'm like, well, to some extent there is, but the problem is most of us don't agree with the merit that they're putting on us, right? Like when you, when you say it's like, Hey, I don't think it's very fair or cool that the insurance can look at me, kind of use some misleading questions to derive. It's like, well, where's this person's social, social network at? Could we sell to the people that he knows? Is he someone that could, that we could leverage that, that aspect of them? I'm like, that, that's a meritocracy. Like that's something that, it's like that they want to measure for their gain, for the thing that they're, the value that they have. It's like, how good are you at getting that? Um, so it's based on that merit. The problem is like, well, that's not the merit we want to be judged on. It's like, but is the merit the market will demand? And therefore it's the one that they're going to put on us and, or like any person that's trying to hire you. And you could understand like, if you owned a business, who would you want to hire? The person that has great values or, you know, is really hardworking on something that isn't going to make you much money or the person that just is, has a disposition to be able to make you money, which is like, that's also where you get like Chelsea Clinton and all that stuff of like people that are super well connected. But here's the thing, Roger, I think all of these decisions, like to hire somebody because they have good connections, I think all of this is terribly short-sighted visioning. I, I think that... In the short term, I'll be able to basically poach this person's social network and sell them some life insurance and so forth. But in the long term, I'm kind of stuck with a, an inept and incompetent employee that later on becomes more of a liability than they are an asset to me. So I would say that as a society, we kind of need to regather ourselves and say, Let's go with the person that has the work ethic. Let's go with the person that wants wisdom because in the long run, they are going to serve us greater as a society. And I think it also connects to this idea of justice being the highest virtue. If justice is your highest virtue, you're not going to hire someone who doesn't deserve the job because of some short-sighted gain. You're going to hire the person that's most deserving of that position. So I think if you subscribe to justice as your highest virtue, you can't really go wrong yeah well I, I guess to me to some extent that that's also the another issue that i have with that idea of like justice as the ultimate virtue or even as you were saying like the people that are going to work the hardest for example that quality of working hard i'm like well we can measure that right like there's a there's a there's 
quite quite a bit of evidence that like that's um, the metric of conscientiousness accounts for a lot of that accounts for how much work you're willing to put in and what they've what they found is that like it, it has nothing to do with like you being hardworking as much as you hating not doing something so it's a negative affect like you're you want to avoid not doing something it's not so much that like working makes you happy but like you just hate the the crack of the whip and for me what i i guess what i worry about and what i think is happening more and more um is that we start to map that and that that then becomes the information of who gets hired who gets to make a living because like my nightmare scenario is uh, as automation starts to pick up in our current society more and more jobs get just get out like filtered out and companies have less and less incentives to just have a lot of people. So then they they can get more and more picky as of who they hire. So this idea of like being able to identify, well, what traits do we want? Well, we want someone who's honest, conscientious, and is going to bring in a lot of value. Okay. Well, we actually are starting to develop, well, they've already developed tests that can do that. It's like IQ test, personality test. The IQ is a, is, has, it's not so much intelligence, just speed, like how fast you can think. It's more, it's more of like, that's the indicator. It's not so much, you can have someone with a really high IQ, but doesn't know anything just because they weren't educated in that, right? Um, and then conscientiousness and maybe orderliness of just in general, of just like how you perceive the world and that will get you far. Oh, and agreeableness so that you don't have to argue with them, right? They don't like conflict, so they won't ask for a raise and they'll just work themselves to death. It's like, to me, like once you start putting those values on there, especially within a capitalist society, it's like, it starts to get, you can get, like you said, that, that idea of like seeking out only people that have a good network, only that becomes like seeking out only people that have certain urges that you can exploit. With this idea of like personality tests and IQ tests and SAT scores and this, that, and the other thing, I kind of am of the opinion that most of that stuff is, is sort of a waste. And then the reason I've come to this conclusion is that people naturally gravitate towards what they're good at. Like if they love something, I don't need a personality test to tell me I love philosophy. I don't need a personality test to tell me that this is something I might be good at, or this is something that I'm interested in. Like we all want to become kings of our respective domains. Like we search our entire lives to say, man, what dominance hierarchy can I rise to the top of? And I, I think it's just a, it's, it's exposure. And I think once we find something that we're really good at, we tend to stick with it and we tend to spend intense levels of energy. And I think that that is a version of the soul speaking to you. The soul by, by rising to the top of a specific dominance hierarchy is your soul's way of saying, this is where you belong. This is what you were meant to do. So if I decided I wanted to become a physics major, but I just suck at physics and it took me like two weeks to solve a problem that all the other kids are taking, you know, uh, an hour to solve, then my soul is telling me that's not the direction you ought to be heading in. Your soul needs to be geared in a different direction. And I think if we, as a society, kind of recognize that, we might have more avenues for people to kind of rise to their highest potential. Right. And I guess for me, like, like I mentioned earlier, for me, you, you're making the exact same argument. Because for me, what, what I see that we've, we abstracted as the concept of a soul 
is our past and our temperament. So like when you say it's like, yeah, if you go to physics to a physics class or like theoretical physics class and you're like, I have no clue what this is and I have no interest in learning any of this, <laughs> like internally, conceptually, you can be like, yeah, it's my soul telling me that this this does nothing for me. And from an external point of view, I'll be like, yeah, because your upbringing and your temperament are not suited for that. And therefore, you don't get that feedback of like, oh, you could progress here, right? Like you don't get that feedback of like, oh, this is actually good and, and you could get better. It's just like, nope, this is not interesting to you. It's not, it's not something you're going to be good at. Ab- abandon this project, go find a better one. And, but like, I, I actually think we're to some extent in an agreement there because I, 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 like I said, like I do, I do think it plays out in the same way. Like, like you said, it's like, no one needs to tell me I like philosophy. It's like, no, but we can measure how, how high you are in intellect and openness. And that will tell us whether you like philosophy or not, right? Like if you're high and open means you're open to new ideas and new concepts and you don't mind the blurring of borders and blurring of categories, which means like your, your current ideas can be shifted and changed and you're, you're okay with morphing your map a little bit. And then being high in intellect, it just means you're high, you, you're more drawn towards abstract ideas over just practical ideas. So then it's like, it's like, yeah, well then, I can spend my whole time thinking about all these abstract ideas and someone who's low in uh, intellect may be like, yeah, yeah, cool. You have all these stupid little ideas. Do any of them do anything in the real world? That's the only thing I care about. What do we, why are you spending, wasting your, you know, but for me, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that, that you can call that the soul or you can call that your, your basically your base settings. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that for people who don't know, what their soul is nudging them to do those tests could like for someone who's just has no idea what direction they need to go then those tests might be able to push them and and that's a good point they might push them in in the proper direction right yeah if you've just never been exposed to philosophy like for me like i wasn't until i was like 16 15 and i was like really depressed and couldn't really find like i had all these ideas but i didn't know i was i felt very alone and it wasn't until i was exposed to philosophy i was like oh here's other people that are thinking about the things that like similar to what I'm thinking about, or at least are interested in talking about these kind of things. So speaking to the much more difficult question is how do we get people's souls aligned with positions that they're well suited for? Because in our current society, we do have like the thousand and one people that are standing in line before you. So let's, let's just say that you're a kid uh, that's born in a rough neighborhood, but you really have great ideas. You really want to be a philosopher and you have a pretty open mindset about ruling the world. But then you have like a Chelsea Clinton standing first in line way ahead of you. How does our society recalibrate itself? How does it rebuild itself so that we can arrive more closer to where somebody who has the right aptitude can get to where they need to be? See, I, I think that begs the question that we already have a value to aim for first, right? Like, I I think that like, though I can understand because to some extent there is like, there's a corruptive power of money. There's the corruption of influence. There's the fact that like, it's, there's this weird nepotism within our government of like all these families kind of being brought into power and just, just kind of always wanting to stay in power. And then there's this, you know, elite ultra rich class that seems to have a massive influence on all of this. So, I, I think for us, the, and I think this is why it always comes back to me for authority, is that we need to find 
of value, especially now that we don't have like the religious structures and that we kind of seem to be stuck in, as we talked in the first episode, in this nihilistic viewpoint that seems to be growing further. We need to agree on an, on a, a value that if not the top one, at least is one that should be held highly, right? Like that we can, to the most part, mostly agree. And I think I can understand why justice would be one. I, I fall a little bit more with truth or transparency. And the reason is it's kind of like the scientific justification of like, it allows itself to be self-correcting, right? Like if you, if it's fully truthful, or even if there's a promise to be fully truthful, well, one, if they're not, then it's like, okay, well, you lied. I can hold you accountable to that. But two, if they are, everyone who is interested in knowing what is happening can see what is happening, which then gives a better faith to the system and also informs everyone on what could change and what needs to change. So I think like full financial disclosure, like the minute you choose to do public service, like a full, like full financial disclosure needs to be that needs to be a requirement, at well, least here, for like anyone with power. Here's a good image. So maybe we see justice as being the knight. You know, he's the in armor. Justice is completely in the knight, and his sword is the truth. So mm. he's basically he represents justice. But in order to arrive at a just society, everything must be completely transparent, and everything must be completely truthful. Otherwise, you cannot have justice and and you know we could lump truth and wisdom into the same bucket but i think that like if the goal is to make the world a just place the the we all want to live in a society where you can honestly look your kids in the eye and be like if you work really hard and you have a passion for this you will get somewhere like we all want that kind of vision to come true that would be like a perfectly just society and the only way that we can do that is if we are fully truthful with the world that we live in. If we're not fully truthful with the world that we live in, we can't honestly look a young kid in the eyes and say those things. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I can definitely understand that. I, I always just worry about getting into that utopia thinking of like where we could all end up. Because for me, I, I view us as the exact, so like I don't view us from the heavens that we could achieve, right? Like because you can imagine a perfect society. And then when you look down and see where we're at, you're like, Jesus, we're terrible. Um, I actually find it much more useful to start from where we are currently at and look at everyone else. Like forget your ideas and your goals. Cause those it's like, yeah, I, I could just keep looking higher and higher and higher. And I could tell, you know, say it's like, Oh my God, like those things they're in the God, you know, they're in the clouds compared to us. It's like, yeah, sure. But we're not there yet what do we got working what works what doesn't work what do other countries what have other countries done and what's worked there and what hasn't worked there and kind of really assessing the situation from that ground because i don't think it's very beneficial to imagine an abstraction and then compare the real world to our current abstraction as a criticism we can hold that as a goal right like maybe someday we should reach that point but not as a criticism on the current system. Cause I, I think that's just not viable. I, I don't think it, it serves much good feedback just cause like your abstraction it is just that, right? It's a made up situation that you're hoping to get to, but it like, it hasn't had to mold itself to reality. Like the current system you actually are standing on has. 
No, no doubt. And I think that's actually a, a, um, a critique of Plato is that he holds on to an idealized form of absolute perfection. That's just, it's not really achievable. And, and, and that's a valid criticism. But I think that a world without any form of anchors does kind of lead the door open to nihilism. Like we, we, right. we, we can say that like, all right, we have this goal up in the sky. We'll never 100% reach it. But as long as we can reach it 80% or 85%, that's still giving life meaning. It's still giving a little zest to life and not just leading to complete despondency and nihilism, uh, you know? So I think I would rather err on the side of Plato and have some lofty goal in the clouds that I don't ever quite achieve than have nothing. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I don't by any means say that, that that's the alternative, right? To just be like, nope, nothing. But it's more a matter of like the lofty goal is only the direction in which we're building. It cannot give us the instruction. I guess that's, that's my point. It's like, like for example, yeah. you, you yeah. saw a lot with like Marxism is Marx, which I fully, like, I really agree with Marx's criticism, but I also think his solution was where, where it kind of faltered. Cause it's like, it's like, well, the criticism's like, yeah, that, that makes sense. We seem to be creating a system that's only going to be pushing capital further and further up. There's going to be an isolation, you know, and eventually it's all going to collapse. I'm like, Oh yeah, that all seems reasonable. It's like, and then like, especially with the, you know, <laughs> with this idea of like the Bolsheviks of like bringing about the revolution that will, and then it's going to play out in this way. It's like, okay, well, Probably not, right? Like we don't actually know most of that. So what do we know from the real world? What can we bring from that? And what can we learn from that? And you can aim for like a utopia, but at the same time, it has to be based on what we actually know, not on what we would like to happen. Because I think there's a real, I think anytime you talk about politics, what we're doing is fantasy projection, right? We're, We're taking a fantasy of what we want the world to be and then project it into reality and saying, this is how things should be. And this is why things are wrong. Right. And we're, we're creating massive oversimplifications the entire time by necessity, by necessity. Like you, you can never account for the entire thing. Helps us find a target and a goal, but not a method to get there. Transitioning from that. I want to talk of this idea of the poets and, and the relationship between them and Plato, because poetry in a sense does create a lot of fantasy and it does create a lot of the things uh, that we sort of aspire to and sort of the things that we glorify. And in, in Plato's times, you would have traveling poets that might play a lyre and speak of getting drunk, or they might speak of womanizing or winning this epic battle and so forth, like I, I think illustrated in the Iliad. Um, but s- these poets tend to distort what might be true virtue. And I think a stand-in for poets in our society today might be our movies, it might be our pop cultures, and it could very well even be the music that we listen to. So although we'll never achieve the big cloud in the sky, I think that we can definitely shift what our anchor is. If if our poets and our pop culture is telling us it's awesome to drive a Lamborghini. It's awesome to live in a very, very big house. It's awesome to own an island and do all sorts of crazy stuff on that island. Then people are going to pursue that fantasy 
Now, 99% of them will not come to own a giant island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where they can do all sorts of wild stuff. However, if our society kind of constantly reinforces that with everything that we see, hear, and think, then we are moving towards fantasies that are perhaps more destructive than they are useful. Yeah, and I, I think it's always it's always interesting with the artists because as we talked about in previous one, they by nature are rule breakers. Like that's why we, that's why we like artists because they're creative and creative in, in every sense of the word, right? They're creative in the sense that they'll, they come up with ideas that no one's ever thought of. They're creative in that they bring about things that otherwise would have never existed, right? Like those, what an artist is essentially doing is creating a, some form of a, either a meme or a display of something that, that captures something that otherwise one wouldn't have existed. And then two is a simplification of reality. that still, that speaks to us in a way that's kind of like a medium between reality and us. Right. Like, so like watching, for example, uh, like you're talking about modern day poets, which is like, yeah, like it's like, for example, the rap videos that were notorious in the nineties. Right. It's like, what is that? What's well, a simplified? It's a simplified look at a possible at at a personality in play, and what that brings. So it's like a guy on a yacht throwing money, throwing champagne with girls dancing all around him. It's like you get the message, right? It's like I am awesome. My life is awesome. I get all the girls. I got money, no problem, and I'm just having debauchery. Like that's my life. You want to be me, don't you? Like, 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 and, and like with a lot of like a lot of hip hop in some of the, especially 2000s was, was kind of the showboaty aspect of that, of being like, yeah. And I, I also think that that comes from, from the culture of, uh, of like we were saying, fantasy projection of like, well, if you grow up and you don't have much, what is your ideal situation? It's like, well, that would have everything. It's like, well, what would that look like? I don't know. I don't have much. So I'm just abstracting what it would be like to have everything. It's like, and I think it's almost all of us do this. Anytime the Powerball goes over a hundred million, yo, I'm going to buy one. It's like, what would you do? Oh, well. And almost all of us, it's not a very sophisticated, you know, fantasy of like, well, first and foremost, I'd find a startup company, invest in it and then buy, you know, like you're like, no, like, it's like, I'm going to go do the stupidest, wildest thing I can think of and act like this money is just infinite. The thing is, I think that these, those particular fantasies that you just outlined, that ideation sort of opens up the door to corruption. Because let's just say, for example, I am a public servant or a low level member of a corporation. And in the back of my, I'm doing my job, but then in the back of my head, I have this idealism of being on a yacht and having all of this money and being able to do it. I'm going to say, well, my ultimate fantasy is to have the yacht. Therefore, I'm going to do whatever corrupt things that I can in order to get that yacht because that's my highest form of fantasy. Whereas if your highest form of fantasy is being like a King Solomon or being a very, very wise and just ruler, then you're not going to necessarily subscribe to corruption as much because your highest ideal self is a very wise ruler. Right. And I guess 
here's the inclination of my my left side again is like because <laughs> i can't help but think it's like yeah but also the only reason that's even a fantasy is because there's a lack of funds right the only reason that comes about is because the system is already so corrupted that it's allowed people to go hungry to be needy to constantly be working check to check well, what was that create well it creates the you know it I'm probably not using the term correctly in the way Marx meant it, but it fetishizes money. It makes money now the most desirable thing. It's like, why? It's like, well, because we don't have any. And if you don't have any of something that you need for survival, that now becomes a very important thing. And then once, once once you're taught that that is the value that you should be seeking, well, it's really hard to then deprogram yourself out of that once you attain sufficient amount. Like what's sufficient? Well, you know, I don't think anyone would ever say they have sufficient money. I think it's a, it's a constant thing that's the more, the more I have, the better off I will be. So perhaps maybe a solution is raising the baseline standard in which we all live in. And then at the same time, though, I think also removing that kind of like wealthy fantasy aspect from our life. Because I think you have to do both. I think because if we raise the standard, let's, let's just say, for example, we raise the standard of living to a point where everyone has food, everyone has a decent home to live in. Let's just say that's, and everyone has healthcare. The basic baseline of living has now raised, but you still turn on MTV and you still see like people on yachts doing all sorts of crazy stuff. It still opens that door for corruption. Like your stomach could be completely filled with food, but because you see someone living a better life than yourself, you're still going to try and pursue that life at any means necessary. But I think if you raise our baseline standard and sort of show more people who uh, like, like if we kind of highlight more brilliant scientists who aren't necessarily like the richest people in the world, but their, their work is so pioneering and so awesome that it's like helping humanity. And those were our icons and those were our heroes then I think we could definitely change what we value and what we focus on as a society. Well, yeah. And I guess for me, I guess I I see the causal relationship reversed, right? Like for me, I see it's like, no, no, the only reason the people flouting money and, you know, this like very juvenile, like teenage fantasy of like, what would you do with, you know, infinite money? It's like, oh, just get yachts and girls, man. Like very like bro-y idea. It's like, well, that would, that's only appealing because the possibility of that is so impossible in like for most Americans, right? For most Americans, it's like, I only actually want that because I don't have any money. Um, And because I don't have any money, I'm not very competitive in the dating market compared to someone who does have money or at least does have an education or does have a career in some sort. Like those things all increase your increase your status in the in the hierarchy. Right. Like it's like if you're well educated with a career and you have at least decent money, like the the chances of you being able to find a partner are are decently high. Whereas like if you're unemployed, Mm. high school dropout right? And you don't have many marketable skills, it's going to be a little bit harder, right? Like it's, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned this, Roger, because maybe I'm the weird one and maybe, maybe the rest of the world looks at it that way, but I I kind of look at it a slightly different way. If you take, for example, um, Bill Gates, who made, like actually made something and 
because of his intelligence, because of his passion, uh, because of his specialized interests and his, de his, his dedicated work ethic, he was able to accrue a lot of wealth. That's something that we can respect and that's something we could aspire to because not because he has fancy things, but because of the work and because of the energy that went into building those fancy things. Whereas I have zero respect for people who simply just inherited their wealth and just were like, oh yeah, I had a trust fund. Like, that's cool that you drive a nice car, but if you just inherited your wealth, I, it, I have a problem respecting you as much and you might be a very good person. I'm not saying that that's a, a judgment on your character or anything like that, but my respect for you just isn't as high as someone who built their own wealth. And it's because I'm looking at the characteristics of that human being. I, I admire Bill Gates, not because he has a yacht, but because of the crazy stuff that he did to be able to afford a yacht. And I think if we start training people to look at money through that lens, like, hey, I respect that rich guy because he did X, Y, and Z, uh, but I don't respect that rich guy because he just inherited it all. We now are setting the framework for what we value as a society. Yeah, I, and I, I definitely, I would agree with that. I think it would just at least require the first step that you had mentioned where it's like, it has to, we ha would have to live in a society in which money isn't as big of an issue where we can at least guarantee that, look, regardless of what happens, you're at least not gonna die, right? Like once you secure <laughs> at least that base, then we can talk about how money's seen. But like when money starts to become associated with your survival or your well-being and then that's extremely scarce and a lot of times it's scarce because of your conditions of birth right like it's like from the start of the game what you're going to learn is whatever gets me it i don't care whoever and however they got it i don't care that's what this game's about that's how we play so think thinking of that though it kind of right now it seems it's sort of incumbent upon our wealthiest members of society to kind of change the paradigm a bit. Um, you might argue that Bill Gates has sort of got the ball rolling on changing the paradigm by giving away his wealth and philanthropy and all this other stuff. But I still think that there are billionaires who are trying to climb the Forbes 100 list. They have all of their baseline expectations met and then some, but they're still, they're still trapped in the yacht pursuit. Even though they have three yachts, they're still pursuing the fourth yacht and they're kind of stuck in that paradigm. And it's until we kind of deprogram those individuals to sort of think like, hey, this paradigm isn't working for me and it's not working for society we need to change things that only then are, are, you know, they going to submit to higher, you know, taxes and all this other stuff and other measures that would allow us to, to raise the floor, so to speak. Yeah. I think this is where I do. I do agree with the lefties to some extent in the sense of like, they're not going to give that up. Right. Like they're going to do the exact opposite. Like you try to pass, for example, wealth tax, I mean, you can see, for example, not to get too political, but just the effect of like this election with uh, when Bernie Sanders starting to get a lead, like suddenly, like every other establishment candidate drops. It's like we got one candidate going against Bernie, right? It's like, whoa, that was a very quick and sudden change to the race. Where did that come from? And I and, you know, like I, mean, I, I think I, I'm a fan of Bernie Sanders. I'm not like a huge like. Bernie bro. Um, but, but, uh, but I do understand the sentiment, but I think more in just 
he's not even that far left on like compared to some of the people that are actually out there. But I think they're at the top of the hierarchy, right? And it's obvious it, and they got there by playing the game well. Like that's how you get, it's, I, I don't like people that just kind of play billionaires. It's just like, oh, they just didn't earn it. They didn't get it. I'm like, I mean, depends what you mean by earn it, right? Like they managed to get on top of there and they're staying on top as long as they can. It's like, they, it's like, it's not an easy thing to do. They are constantly fighting to keep that power. Now, should that be commendable and respectable? Probably not. There's just like a ridiculousness to anyone hoarding that much wealth. It's like, but that's also what they're programmed to do, right? Because that's what they trained themselves to do. That's how they got there in the first place. They didn't get, you don't become the richest people on earth by accident. You don't do that by just like fumbling into it. It's like, no, that's a precise, you know, methodical climb to that position. But I, I think that that is, I like the word that you use. You said they're, condi- they're conditioned to do that. But I think that conditioning is based on societal adulation. So I think Jeff Bezos might think in his head, man, if I'm no longer rich, no one's going to listen to me. No one's going to respect me. No one's, no one's going to want, you know, CNN isn't going to want to interview me. But I think if we change the paradigm around where it's like, wow, we like your characteristics. And even if you lost all of your wealth, even if you lost every penny that you ever earned, we like your character and we like the gumption and we like the intelligence that it took to build a company like Amazon. He would be a little less frugal, I imagine, because he still has the adulation. He still has the societal uh, recognition, but it's not tied to his bank account number. It's tied to his character. And I, I think that's kind of what Plato wants us to do. He wants us as a society to applaud and reward individuals that are of outstanding character. And if that outstanding character leads you to become wealthy, that's fine. You know, like, like you can't, I'm not saying you can't have both, but what I'm saying is that right now, our current paradigm, our current way of looking at the world is that wealth equals great character. And once the wealth's gone, that's some kind of lapse or some kind of flaw in your character that made you lose all your money. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, it's one of those things where it's like, is there anyone that's broke that we respect their character? I, I, I would, you know, I would say that, like, I mean, I'm not saying broke, but like, if you look like it at Martin Luther King Jr., for example, do we respect him because he was really wealthy? Like, like, you know, I'm sure he had an okay house and 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 you know, basic necessities, but he wasn't a wealthy guy. Like, I I think we we gave him a national holiday because of his character alone. So I would would say that's an example of somebody that I'm not saying, again, Plato said that extreme poverty, like extreme poverty that prevents you from doing anything. Like if you have no Wi-Fi act, and I guess in our world, we would say you have no Wi-Fi or something that's considered like extreme poverty. But if you're coming from extreme poverty, that's not necessarily a good thing. But I would say if you're of modest middle-class means, we can still respect you a great deal. Yeah, I, I guess more my point was once the public begins to respect anyone in, in, a, in a consistent way, not just like 15 minutes of fame way, right? Where you're like, oh, you're cool. And then we forget about them. But like <laughs> someone, like you said, like Martin Luther King or someone like that. Naturally, that then starts to push a lot of opportunities that maybe they won't take but a lot of opportunities for them to then monetize that that respect so for me i see it as 
I, I see the money and the respect somewhat connected, not directly and not, it's never a, a direct indication from anything, but it's more like a one, one tends to bring the other, right? Like if you have a lot of, and I think it's associated with power and hierarchy, right? Like the richer you are, the more you power you have to create your will into the world, which then demands more respect. So like, yeah, go ahead. I, I will, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and, and, and there's definitely some truth in that. But I will say this, if let's say Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or any of these other historical figures that we respect that weren't necessarily wealthy, I imagine if someone approached them with a business opportunity that forced them to compromise their moral integrity, they would decline that business opportunity. And that's the kind of characteristic that we need to kind of applaud a bit more. Like I think, Rob, like for example, Robin Williams, you know, who was paid large sums of money for the movies that he did, he said, if you don't hire like a certain number of homeless people, like I'm not doing this film or something like that. So that's like an example of somebody that's giving up money, like like Disney wanted to pay him all this money to do X, Y, and Z. But that's an example of somebody like putting their character and putting their virtue above just monetary gain. And it's okay if your morals and your money align perfectly. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful thing to happen. But I'm saying we want to applaud characters that are also willing to forego money in exchange for pursuing their higher good. Yeah, I, actually, as you're saying that, I, I'm going to have to eat my own words because I did think of someone that kind of along those lines, and that's uh, Dave Chappelle, walking away from the Dave Chappelle. Yes, Chappelle yes. Show, right? Like it's like it's like all right, yeah, fair enough. But I, I guess to some extent, it's like he was still already rich. He was still already had the money, which kind of goes back to the same point, right? Is as we respect them, like for example, when he comes back with his with his comedy specials, like as like because we respected him, it grew that influence and that that allure that we have for him which then only creates more opportunities for him to then create money so it's like this but, but I, I get what you mean uh, i think we're, we're getting stuck in a rut here but like i i do get what you mean about this idea of wanting people that are able to go beyond the drive to just attain more resources or wealth which i think is for us is a really hard thing to do because i think it's per, it's partly programmed in all of us it's i think it's more programmed in the like resource general resource category things that will allow you to do what you want to do and then money gets put into that as like this is how you do it and this is what's most valuable all right so so leading leading exiting our discussion a bit and thinking of this idea of justice being the highest virtue what 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 can we as a society do to sort of promote that justice kind of mindset and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know we're you know vowing to be impoverished and not own a single material possession but how do we as a society begin selecting people because it's the just thing to do like we're selecting this person because they're the hardest working they're the most deserving how do we kind of reorient our mindset where, where when, when every time we're hiring somebody, whenever a teacher is giving out grades, they do it in the most just way possible. I think, yeah, I, I guess for me, I think the, the, the closest we could probably ever agree with would be something like uh, equality of opportunity, right? Like it's like 
everyone should have a fair shot to get something. Um, I think it gets extremely complicated once you add, you know, money and the fact that different people have money. Like you were talking about, like, for example, just you staying with the um, platonic framework of like the guardians. It's like, yeah, why? But wouldn't we want the richest people to be the leaders because they could afford the best schools and get the best training? And, you know, what I mean, so like once the money comes into it, it gets a little bit more complicated. But I also think. I think if we want to maintain this, you know, unfair distribution or unequal distribution of wealth, but equal distribution, well, you can't also have equal distribution of opportunity, but you can have a base level um, distribution of opportunity, right? Where it's like, and I think to some extent we have that, not like anything else, it's not perfect. We do have like public schooling, we have some, you know, some basic safety nets. Um, but I think expanding that and improving that is probably the best way to improve a society is expanding our public health system, public school system. Cause the more people we ride like mental health system, that's a massive one that we really need. But um, basically trying to catch as many people as are falling because those people might be able to still climb up. And I, I, I think that's the biggest loss of resource that we actually have is the loss of human potential that we allow fall through and just kind of abandon. And it's like, we don't know what value they could actually have had. And, th and then there's some people that might never add value that we as a full society value, but that we still should, you know, and that's where the empathetic and uh, compassion aspect comes in where it's like, well, we should still take care of those people. And like, I, I guess to some extent you need to, for, for it to be justice, for it to be fair, which I think is what, what we're trying to aim at, right? Something that feels fair. Um, everyone needs to at least have an opportunity to climb the hierarchy. And I mm. think I think studies have shown that like as the hierarchy gets steeper, there's more violence at the bottom and the, there's more likelihood that the people playing the game at the bottom and losing just say, screw this, what do I have to lose, right? If, if I go into a violent overthrow, I'm either gonna die, but I was gonna die anyway, or I might actually get something out of this. Yeah, and I, I think that, like, when the top gets too narrow, it does propagate, like, permanent victimhood status, like, because, and, and some of it might be mentally contrived, but some of it might be real, like, I, there's no way I'm climbing out of this level of debt or this level of poverty, and, 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 and it's, it's a balance between some of it uh, being real and some of it being perceived. I always say this, you can be a kid and go home to a mansion, or you could be a kid and go home to a, a one bedroom apartment. But what really matters is that both those kids are going to good schools that have the same, if, if one school has a swimming pool, they should probably all have swimming pools so that they all have the equal level of exposure and opportunity uh, to excel at something. And the second thing is, is that every kid, regardless of their station in life, deserves the right to move forward and not be bogged down with, well, I, I can't enter politics because I'm not a Chelsea Clinton or I'm not a George W. Bush and I don't have the last name. You should be able to pursue whatever it is that you desire and money and connections should not even be entering your framework because we should be at such a level of meritocracy 
that you could in reality just be the best at something and move up and just really work that hard. And I would say that if we, regardless of the conditions that you raise a child, whether you raise your child in a rich household or a poor household, I think we will have arrived at a just society when we can look any kid in the eye and be like, yes, you can in fact achieve that. And I, I don't think we're there right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, from my perspective, you're you're currently flying the high in the clouds, and I'm, you know, like, <laughs> from my perspective, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that sounds great, um, but the the how is the biggest issue there, and the who pays for it, and where this value comes from. But I, I I do agree with the with the notions, right? I do agree with the general values of like we should be aiming to try to give as many people as we can, and we should be trying to constantly increase the numbers, right? Like that's a, just a constant improvement. It's like the better we can make our schools, the better we are like in so many different levels, the better we can make our schools, the better we're prepared to take on any new challenge, right? The smarter we can make our kids, the more prepared we can get them, the better we're going to have advantages in almost every field, right? Like anything from military technology to, you know, consumer technology to efficiencies to philosophies to culture like education for me is something that like and it it, it is expensive but it's not it's also the thing that you get the most return from right like it's going to take a long time it's a long-term investment which is why i think it doesn't get much attention because it it's the, it's the the wisdom of like planting the tree that you're never going to sit in the shade of like that classic saying is like, it's essentially that because by the time these kids grow up and are able to contribute, you might already be dead. Right. So it's not for you. Um, but I, I think, I think like, like we were talking about last episode, that idea of, of nihilism, I think is kind of seeping into how we view our lives. Cause I think for a lot of people, they tend to start seeing it as just like, look, I'm going to be born and then I'm going to die. It's point A to point B. So whatever happens in between that, I'm going to do the most I can for me. Right. Or maybe for, for, for my kid or may, you know, but then it ends when I end. I, I think we really need to start to see it much more in, in as a process as like, we are a part of a process that was here way before us and it's going to continue way after us what are we doing to make that process better or worse? Because like every action we do is shaping that process. And I think to leave off, I'm going to leave us off with a quote from Plato. And, and perhaps this kind of will be the bedrock of meaning that gets us out of nihilism, where he says, a life of only wealth in excess is not a life worth even living. So I think if we want to get out of this idea of, of nihilism and this idea that life is only about being cushiony and being well-resourced and being well-protected, then, and, and we start driving towards higher idealism and we start aiming towards things that are much higher in the sky in terms of character, I think we as a society can arrive there. With that being said, this concludes the second episode of our podcast. I'm Aaron Azarod. And I'm Roger Armandadis. We will catch you next week for the third installment in our Philosophical Toolbox.